Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and back on the program, we have Brian Zahn. Pastor Brian Zahn is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. It's a non-denominational Christian congregation where it was founded in 1981 by Brian and his wife, Perry. Brian is the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, which is one of my all-time favorite books, and the topic of today's discussion, Postcards from Babylon. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Doug. It's good to be with you. At LCI, we talk a lot about empire, and your books and sermons also talk a lot about empire. You know, you're probably familiar, at least somewhat, with the libertarian way of looking at looking at the state and being very much against a lot of what it does, especially war. So we have a lot of that in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, whenever any two people discuss empire, it's not it's not quite a modern word. It's an ancient word, and yet it also is very, very present in our world. So, how would you define empire, and how would we recognize it? When I use the word empire, I'm using it almost as a technical word. It's not a pejorative, although I, you'll see what I think about empire, but it's actually a technical word with a, for me anyway, a theological definition. Empires are rich, powerful nations that believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda. That's what I mean by empire. Now, let's make a distinction from, you know, a nation, a country, a people. In the Bible, and this is where I'm, this is what's forming my thinking on this matter, uh, you see that God loves nations with their ethnicity and their diversity and their culture and their language and all of that, their autonomy. God loves nations. That seems to be part of God's plan and purpose for humanity, but God is deeply opposed to empire. Why? Because what empires claim for themselves, that is a divine right to rule other nations, a manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda, is the very thing that God has promised to his son. And so empires set themselves up immediately to be an idolatrous rival to the sovereignty of God. And when I say this, when I, I want people to understand that this is, a, this is not a minor issue in Scripture. It is a major recurring theme that runs quite literally from Genesis to Revelation. It's very pronounced in Exodus, in many of the Hebrew prophets' writings, in the Gospels, in Paul's writings, and especially in the book of Revelation. But if this comes as news to American Christians, if they say, well, I've never seen it that way, well, it's because we have been conditioned to screen that out. That's part of the challenge of living in in an empire is to be aware of what you're a part of. So empires are not merely nations. They're rich, powerful nations that want to rule the world and think that they have a divine right or a destiny or it's something's just not right if they're not number one and enforcing their will upon other nations. That's what I mean by empire. How do you help a Christian who doesn't recognize that America is the de jure empire of, of our world today? Because they would probably take your definition and say, well, we don't think that. We, we just think that, you know, people should have freedom or whatever. Well, you, you, can, you can talk about, you know, military bases, and I've forgotten the number, but it's, you know, it's well over 180 nations. I mean, mean, it's absurd. Now, so, so let me just say something about America. America, when we talk about America, we're talking about something that is so huge. America is not one thing. America is at least four things. America is a nation, a culture, an empire, and a religion. As a nation and a culture, 
I mean, there is, you know, there is the United States of America with its borders and its people and government and all that. And, uh, and there is, of course, American culture. As a nation and a culture, America is a mixed bag. Yes, there's plenty to critique, but there's also much to celebrate. There's, there are many aspects of American culture that are commendable and should be celebrated and appreciated. And I, and I try to do that. As a empire, though, now we're, we're creating a problem. And then as a religion, that's where I could probably get the most pushback. But is it really? Is it really a matter of debate? I mean, if you can just take a deep breath, take a step back and look at it objectively. America is a religion complete with sacred documents and holy days and holy sites and revered saints and creation myths with liturgical symbols and on and on it goes. Now, part of the problem is that Americanism as a religion borrows heavily from the vocabulary of Christianity and they get conflated. And of course, this is a lot of what my book is about, is trying to help Christians uncouple Americanism as a religion from the authentic faith in Jesus Christ that we know as Christianity. Maybe I'm just jumping right into the heart of what I have to say here. I don't know. But I think one of the most important things that American Christians can do right now is to learn to view America as a kind of biblical Babylon and not a kind of biblical Israel. We are not a kind of Israel with a covenant with God and a, and a promise to, you know, possess a land and all of that. No, that is not. We are not analogous to Old Testament Israel. We are analogous to Babylon and then all of its successors, you know, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then down through history. I mean, Russia's had its time of being an empire. There's Byzantine Empire, the, the great European empires of France and Germany and mm of course, England, and now we are living in the time of the American empire, China on the rise. But I mean, we're living in a time when Christians have the challenge in America of living in a, in a host nation that is an empire, and that's always a problem. I mean, it's, all, it's been a problem for 17 centuries. It presents a very profound challenge, and sometimes, you know, the imperial ambitions of a particular nation can be relatively benign or they can be as malignant and dangerous as it was in 1930s Germany. As, as one who is committed to the way of peace as set forth by our Lord, I'm often challenged by people who say, yeah, what about Hitler? And I say, okay, I'm willing to have this discussion, but you can't just drag me into the middle of it. Before we talk about what do you do when you have a Hitler on your hands, we have to talk about how was it possible that Hitler was able to wage his war with baptized soldiers. Uh, we need to keep in mind that Hitler came to power through the overwhelming support of the German evangelical church. In fact, I'm sitting right here. It's on my desk, my writing tables where I'm recording this from. It's a big, how big a book is this? This is a, a nearly 500-page book, A Church Undone, Documents from the German Christian Movement, 1932 to 1940. And this is simply a collection of sermons and essays written by German evangelicals between 1932 and 1940, uh, convincing their congregants and church members and whoever will listen why it was God's will that Germany be number one and why God had blessed Germany with Adolf Hitler, etc. So I, I think I've rambled too long here, Doug. But um, so, so anyway, uh, my point is, if we don't see the host nation as an empire, when in fact it is, then we're incapable of even mounting any kind of Christian-based resistance to cooperating with the idolatrous agenda of empire. When you read the book of Daniel, our church is currently going through the book of Daniel in the sermon series, and it's basically 
Christians in exile kind of is the theme a little bit. Yep. Um, do you think modern Christians, or I should say, do you think American Christians uh, live more like Babylonians or are we more like Daniel? I mean, should we see ourselves as in exile or should we see ourselves as we became Babylonians? We were Babylonians first and we, you know, became Jewish or like, I, I, where does the analogy or metaphor kind of work in your mind? The Jewish experience of exile in Babylon and then later Persia can be very instructive for any Christian living in an empire. It's, 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 why, it's why early Christians living in Rome drew upon it. Uh, so, but let me, let me give some of the historical foundation for this thinking. In 587 BC, there was the final, there had been some earlier waves of deportation, but you have the final destruction of Jerusalem by the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar. And most of the population was forcibly deported to Babylon. While they're there, they're still holding on to the idea that this is a temporary thing that's happened, and very soon they will be able to return to Judea. Jeremiah the prophet writes them a letter and says, you know, it's not, it's not going to be that way. So you need to unpack your bags. You need to stop thinking that this is going to be short this is going to be at least 70 years. And so you're going to have to put down roots. You're going to have to get on with your life. You're going to have to, you know, get your kids married and all of that. And so, so he tells them that, and that's, you know, the famous verse uh, where they're told to seek the welfare of the city in which God has caused you to dwell. So they're to seek the welfare of Babylon. That is, you know, the, the, the common good, because this is going to be their home for a couple of generations. The problem is that, that is they got a little bit too good at being at home in Babylon. Now the threat was that they would lose their identity as the people of God, as Jewish people, and they would just they would just simply uh, be assimilated into the Babylonian culture. And so then you have the prophets really urging them to live distinct, separate lives, and you see that theme in. Daniel, where the story is, it's during, because, you know, Babylon was uh, conquered by Persia, and so now they're under a Persian regime. And basically, the, the book is dealing with the issue of how do you get on in an empire and, you know, have a job, go to work, have a life, have a home and have kids and whatever else, but don't compromise your Jewish identity? Where's the line? How do you negotiate that? How do you navigate those treacherous waters? On the one hand, you know, you, you have your life to live in this land and you've got to figure out how to do it. On the other hand, you don't want to sacrifice your fidelity to God. And so Daniel is really about how, how young men especially can maintain their Jewish identity but not get killed mm. either, <laughs> not be a needless martyr. So you have the story of Daniel and his friends who even occupy government positions. But as is clear, there'll be times when it's a bridge too far. And they say, no, we're not going to bow down to that. No, we're not going to do that. And you may end up in a fiery furnace or you may end up in a lion's den, but you have to be willing. Most scholars, I'll do a little, I'll do a little Bible nerdy stuff here. Sure. Most Bible scholars believe that Daniel is written around the year 160 B.C. Its setting is much earlier, centuries earlier. So it's the story of Daniel is set centuries earlier than when it's actually written. And the reason was is that it was written during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, during his forced Hellenization program of the Jewish people. So they're, they're an occupied people. They're back in their land for the most part. They're back in Judea at this point, but they're not self-governing yet. They're under the Seleucid Empire. And at this point, the, the uh, Seleucids, these Greek Syrians, are, are really trying to wipe out Judaism by forcing the Jews to act as though they're Greeks, to eat, you know, to give up their kosher diet, to give up the practice of circumcision, just to abandon the Torah. And so Daniel is composed at this time, but it's too dangerous to have it set in the contemporary events of the time. So they make it like a, they, they set it, you know, centuries earlier during the time that they were in Persian exile. 
the book of Daniel, I love the book. I just, I think it's a fabulous book. And I think that, and if you can learn to read it right, the book of Revelation are the two most helpful books that I can think of for Christians that happen to be living in a host empire. That's what those books are about. The book of Revelation is mostly a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire. I mean, the beast is the Roman Empire. Okay, that's that's what it is. I mean, <laughs> spoiler <laughs> alert, <laughs> the beast is the Roman Empire. And 666 is Caesar Nero. Okay, that's, that's, that's what it is. Oftentimes you'll hear people that aren't maybe as informed as they could be saying that, the book of Revelation was written during a time of persecution to persecuted Christians to encourage them. No, it wasn't. Uh, it was written probably during the reign of Domitian, which was a peaceful, quiet time. And what was happening was you're, you're now getting into the second and third generation of Christians, and the writer of Revelation, John the Revelator, is concerned that these Christians are getting too comfortable in the Roman Empire. And with all kinds of dramatic theater and symbol, he is trying to remind them, remember, at its heart, this thing is a beast. And so be careful. Don't so compromise with the agenda of the Roman Empire that you end up with the mark of the beast all over your life. And that's what John the Revelator is trying to do. Now, of course, if, if you read the book of Revelation wrong, it's about the least helpful book <laughs> in the entire canon. If you try to read it as, okay, this is a prediction of geopolitical events of the 21st century penned in the late 1st century, that's entirely unhelpful. No, the book of Revelation is not about our time, but it's for our time. It's about how the church positions itself in relation to empire. And we don't follow a beast. We follow a lamb. We don't follow an elephant. We don't follow a donkey. We follow a lamb. And that throws us, though, into the realm of political theology, which in my mind is, is a minefield. It's, it's the hardest area for me to find my balance in theologically. And I'm, I'm not a Christian anarchist. There, are, there is a position of Christian anarchism. And I'm not a Christian anarchist. I'm opposed to Christian participation in war as the early church was, but I'm not opposed to a police function. And I make a distinction between war and police function. I understand that in dysfunctional societies, th that distinction can almost be erased. But in a generally functioning society, there really is a profound distinction between the waging of war and police function, even though both may use elements of force. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. The, 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 again, I feel like I've just Take no, off no, and left no, in the dust good. there, Doug. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, you had that moment to geek out in theology, so that was good. And I'm and I'm glad you brought up Revelation because yeah. it kind of, you know, in in my brain when you talk about Daniel and you jump to Revelation, I have this visualization of the way I my mind grew up reciting Bible verses, and so I'm thinking, all right, you're sort of bookending the central message here, which is Christ. And one of the mm -hmm. one of the I would say the most fallacious beliefs in Christianity today is that Jesus, the message of Jesus was not political. And I think you would agree that it is political. Right. And uh, I agree hundred percent. It's entirely political. And I don't know. I think this is probably my biggest grudge. Or it, with, it, it has political implications at every level. At the very least. Right. Well, gee, what Jesus go, go ahead and then I'll, then I'll respond. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what's interesting for me is like, I, I kind of say that this is my, my biggest grudge in the theology that, they didn't tell me when I was growing up was that Jesus is Lord was a political statement. Yes. And I was very, very attentive to what my pastors were saying, you know, growing up. And I'm, you know, I learned this later on through N.T. Wright. And I was like, wait, what? This changes a whole lot. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to change everything about the way you think about theology, but it's a huge deal. It's huge. And why is it so important that we at least understand the implications that the gospel is political? I mean, people, empires don't, care if you have a private religious experience. I mean, that's kind of the first place I start. Where do you go when people kind of object to that idea? The early Christians, you know, have a legacy of martyrdom. The first three centuries, um, they weren't constantly persecuted, but they were periodically persecuted. Not everyone was persecuted, but often uh, bishops and leaders were, during times of these persecutions, were hauled before magistrates and often executed. What people need to, I mean, people are generally aware of that. What you really, though, need to understand is 
that the early Christians were not, they were not ever persecuted for religious reasons. The Roman Empire was remarkably religiously tolerant. You couldn't have an empire in the ancient world and not be religiously tolerant. And so if the gospel that the early Christians was preaching was believe in Jesus so that you can go to heaven when you die, I promise you the Roman Empire couldn't care less. They would say, great, you can go wherever you want when you die. We don't care. Uh, What we care about, though, is that you get with the program of supporting Caesar, etc. The terms Son of God, Lord, Savior, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Savior of the world, were all imperial titles that had been in a formal way issued by the Roman Senate to the emperor. And this was communicated in the only means of mass communication available at the time on the coinage. And so you would have a depiction, the image of Caesar on a coin, and then there would be one of his imperial titles, son of God, savior of the world, prince of peace, Lord. So when Christians start appropriating those for Jesus Christ, that is a highly and deeply subversive political act, and it's dangerous because as— It would be like today us saying, uh, Jesus is my commander-in-chief. Exactly. And uh, when you say Jesus is Lord, that's a political statement. And when you say that, by implication, you're saying, and Caesar is not. Jesus' ministry and message was one thing. Jesus only talked about one thing. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. Everything Jesus said or did was either an announcement or an enactment of the kingdom of God. The problem is kingdom sounds to us a bit archaic. Uh, We don't, Mm -hmm. you know, kings and queens and that's, you know, bygone era. The politics of God. Think of it, hear it like that. Jesus preached the politics of God. But the and, and, Or in Matthew, it's the politics of heaven. But it's not the politics that we're going to have when we go to heaven. It's heaven is now breaking into the earth through Jesus Christ, bringing a new politics, a new arrangement of human society, a new priority, a new organizing principle, the organizing principle being love, so that the world is to be organized around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness instead of an axis of power expressed in violence. So yes, yes, the the kingdom of Christ is highly political, but what it is not, it is not partisan, meaning Jesus will not serve another political interest because he has his own politics. Karl Barth said it this way, remember, and Barth, it was writing in response to the Nazi appropriation of evangelical Christianity or Protestant Christianity, especially in um, Germany, Karl Barth says, God cannot serve, God can only rule. Now, what Barth means, especially in his context, he doesn't mean that God in Christ doesn't express the humility of servanthood. He doesn't mean that. What he means is, God cannot serve your political agenda or anybody else's political agenda, God can only enforce his own agenda. And what we have now, particularly pronounced among the religious right, is the idea that Jesus is interested in serving the political agenda of the Republican Party. And that is, the nicest thing I can say is it's absurd. (laughs) The more pointed thing I might say is that is idolatrous and blasphemous. Uh, Jesus, that, that reduces Jesus to a mascot, But of course, that goes all the way back to Constantine, because once you have a Christian emperor, and by extrapolation, a Christian empire is the idea, well, then what do you do with Jesus? I mean, I thought Jesus was bringing the empire of heaven into earth. Well, no, we've got the Roman empire, and it's Christian now. Okay, so what do we do with Jesus? We can't just get rid of Jesus. Well, he becomes the secretary of afterlife affairs, and now his job is to get us to heaven when we die. But between here and heaven, we're free to more or less, you know, run the world the way we want. That's what's Mm -hmm. happened. And 
so Jesus' domain is in heaven. He, he kind of, you know, has some ideas about what ought to be done here, but he pretty much delegates it. And to hear it told, he's delegated his will to the Republican Party. Again, that's absurd. If I want to be nice, it's uh, idolatrous and blasphemous. If I want to be more pointed. No, Jesus has his own politics, and he's not going to serve the donkey cause or the elephant cause. He has the cause of the lamb. He, he has his own politics. And so when, when, when people hear us say that Jesus is political, sometimes they mishear that as partisan, hmm. that Jesus is either a Democrat or Republican. He's neither. He's, he's Lord is what he is. And he serves his own politics that are more or less expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, people will say, well, I remember, I remember this was this was back when Barack Obama was running for president for his first term. I guess this would have been like, you know, 2007, 2008. And someone asked him, would you govern, if you become president, would you govern according to the Bible? Of course, that's a tricky question, you see. And you know what evangelicals want him to say. They want him to say, oh, yes, 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 yes. I'm, yeah, yes, I believe the Bible. But Barack Obama was more honest than that. He says, well, I don't know how I could do that. Because if I take the Bible seriously, I think I'd have to, uh, you know, if I take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, I think I would have to, you know, dismantle the, secret, the, the, the Department of Defense. Well, he, he's making the point. And, and, of course, I don't know if very many people in the religious right can even see this. But you cannot have a Christian nation. The only thing you can have Christian is that which can be baptized. You can have a Christian person and you can have a Christian church, we hope for. We, we hope for a Christ-like life and a Christ-like church. Uh, you can't have a Christ-like nation that owns nuclear weapons and is prepared to use them. So, yes, Jesus is political, but he's not going to serve the political interests of some political party. He has his own agenda. And, and Doug, that's so hard for people to see. I, I, I understand that's hard. But what, it, what we're asking you to do is to see the kingdom of God. And to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. You have to be willing to just start all over and rethink everything. And if you're not, that's what Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you're not willing to rethink everything, take it from the top and just rethink everything, you'll never perceive the kingdom of God, even though it's here. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin of MereLiberty.com and a contributor here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you haven't heard, I'm debating Walter Block on the question of whether a woman has the right to evict or abort her fetus at any time during her pregnancy. This debate will be hosted by the Soho Forum at 3 p.m. on Sunday, December 8th at the Subculture Theater in New York City. Tickets for this event range from $12 to $24. Seating is limited and will likely sell out. Register now to reserve your seat. You can buy tickets at thesohoforum.org. To hear more about my position, you can visit my website at mereliberty.com abortion. What about parties or even just movements within parties, and I, and I mean political parties here, who try to mimic the commands of Jesus and make that sort of an absolute, you know, I, I guess another way to put it would be they're using the, the MO of power. I think Greg Boyd says, you know, power over, you know, domination to yeah. enact things that appear to be as if they were in the way of Jesus. And, and I'll just be more explicit, you know, this the whole push for Medicare for all and a lot of things that most people on the right would call socialism or communism or whatever, like it doesn't matter what you call it, but basically yeah. what we're hearing right now from the democratic party, these big agendas to like provide for everybody in, in from the federal government sounds really much like Jesus. I hear Christian left leaning, you know, magazines and online places say, well, Hey, you know, you know, we need to, you know, if you think this is radical, Jesus, you know, the Bible says that we should forgive people and it says that we should do all these different things. And, you know, from my perspective, growing up with the false belief that America was a Christian nation and, and starting to realize that that's not even possible. That's not even the goal. It's hard for me not to see these agendas as trying to push back into, oh, well, we're going to be a Christian nation, but we're just going to do it with these types of uh, social programs and so forth. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to much of what you're saying there. Um, sometimes <laughs> I want to push back on the Christian left and say, 
look, you're going to have to tell me what the difference is between Jesus and Bernie. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I know you think they're both socialist Jews, <laughs> but here, but but let me also push on the other direction. Here. Well, the so, difference is that one invited people to join his movement, and the other one's going to make us if he's if he's elected. Okay, yeah, uh, I would I would say yeah, the, the Sermon on the Mount can only be lived by the church, and even then, it's difficult. It's very demanding, but it can only be done by the church. That doesn't mean, though, that we shouldn't seek the common good. I mean, I think, again, I'm not, a, I'm not an anarchist. This is where Greg Boyd and I differ a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Greg's a good friend. I mean, we've discussed this openly and debated it, and, but we're, we're, we're pals. Greg, I think, would more or less want Christians to have no involvement with the state, which would include being school teachers, et cetera, you know, the sewer department, but... I I think that's uh, unrealistic. I draw the line at the waging of war. The early church, even in fact, the early church did not demand that soldiers that convert they didn't they didn't want Christians becoming soldiers. But if they were soldiers and they were in the Roman military and became Christian, they did not require them to leave the military because, like it is in our situation, this is the way it is with empires. The military is so pervasive that it it's involved in all kinds of things, including, you know, engineering and building bridges and all that sort of thing. They simply wanted, though, the soldiers that became Christians were to take a vow that they would not kill, even in war. And so they could still be a part of the apparatus, but they're, they're going to draw the line. They're not going to kill. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if I want to live in a society where no one in public service is a Christian. I mean, I, I like the idea of Christian school teachers. And I, I, I think my opinion is, is that a Christian in a participatory democracy can participate at any level. They can vote. They can run for office. They can hold office, provided that they can still act in love, provided that they don't have to vilify the other provided that they don't end up being drawn into the ways of the Satan, of blame and accusation and, and uh, scorched earth policy. If, if your politics makes it impossible or very difficult for you to love someone else of another persuasion politically, then you need to abandon those politics and take up your cross and follow Jesus. But if, if you're healthy enough in your soul and, and the society's healthy enough, I mean, I look at my father, who is who really is. He passed away ten years ago, but he there's really not been anyone I've admired more than my father, who was a judge, a judge, Sunday school teacher, community leader, just a beloved man in in the city. So he he was very involved, but he was never he was involved politically, but he was never a partisan, and he was never ugly about it. So um, I, I think I, I'm not a libertarian. I don't know what I am. I, I try. I don't really identify myself. I've traveled enough in Europe. I've been in Europe a lot over the last ten years. I, in fact, I'm just back from seven weeks in Europe. American exceptionalism is kind of a thing, and it's not always a good thing. There, there is a an arrogance and a hubris that Americans seem to carry. I think part of it has to do with our geography. We're just kind of you know, we're the size of a continent off by ourselves. And we think that there's no other way to do things in the way we do them. I might disagree with that. I think um, there are better ways than than what we do. So, so um, I, I think being a Christian is going to probably, it should anyway, Christ should inform how we think about everything. But that doesn't mean it's, quote, Christian. So what I might think about gun legislation or health care or immigration needs to be informed by Christ. That, though, doesn't mean that I'm seeking to make America a Christian nation because I think that's an impossibility. It's just an impossible task. It won't happen. That being said, how I go about seeking the common good probably should be informed by Christ, shouldn't it? I think so. But as I said, so so now we're we're kind of at the intersection of theology and politics mm-hmm. or political theology. 
And it's tricky. It's I, I find myself, it's where I will spot my own inconsistencies. And um, so, you know, we, we have Trinitarian theology pretty much established. We've got the Nicene Creed and, you know, we've had this for 17 centuries. A political theology seems to always be in flux. And part of the reason is the New Testament doesn't seem to anticipate Christians being in power. Now, some would say, okay, then they just shouldn't be. So you, you have, the, the, for example, the famous misuse of Romans 13 by a lot of Christians. You know, and so if, if your guy is in is the president, then you're all about Romans 13, and you you know you have to you should just submit to the emperor if 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 he's, if he's your emperor, you know. So if you're if you like Trump, then you're all about right, Romans yeah. 13, but you weren't about that, right, you know, six exactly. years ago. You weren't into Romans that. Romans 13 is a subversive text if the guy who's in power you don't want to be, and it's your favorite text if the guy is in power that you do want to be in power. But here's the thought experiment. If and I, and I think here's 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 really what I think is going on in Romans 13. By the way, uh, you'll notice that the pronouns change. Paul is talking to the believers and he's saying you 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 you. And then when he talks about the sword wielder, he changes and he talks about him or he or they. And so Paul acknowledges that there are governments that have the sword; they have power. And not everything they do with the sword is what we would think of as evil. I mean, you know, I, I'd like the idea of bank robbers probably not robbing banks and serial killers not killing and they're apprehended and put where they can't harm people. I, I, I think I like that idea. Paul, though, I think what he's really after is he's worried that Christians are going to be a part of a revolutionary movement. Paul is writing this probably around the year, we don't know, early 50s, probably. Already, Paul is very aware of the anti-Roman sentiment that's fomenting among Jews in Judea that's eventually going to break out in 66 as the first Jewish war and lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. Paul doesn't want Christians caught up in that. And basically what he's saying is you don't need to be involved in trying to overthrow a government. You don't need to be involved in violent revolution. Right. That's, that's what Paul is doing there. But if I said to Paul, okay, Paul, but what do we do if Christians actually get in power? If Christians actually have the power? I think Paul would say, yeah, that couldn't happen. To which I would say, well, you, you might be surprised how the deal is going to go down. Um, I don't think it happens without a massive compromise, but no. it still it happens. And it, it has happened. And the New Testament doesn't seem to anticipate Christians actually being in the role of governance, which creates so, – so, so we're trying to navigate waters – and, if, and, of course, a fully involved participatory democracy wasn't even on the radar screen. And so our situation is a little bit different. Yeah. It was because, you know, Christians in the Roman Empire, even if they're citizens, you know, they, they're not voting. They're not choosing representative, you know, leaders to go to Rome and sit in the Senate. That isn't how the Senate was determined. At times, the radical Anabaptist approach of just saying, I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. it. It's your problem. You all figure it out. That I find that very appealing. Mm -hmm. I love it for its consistency. And yet, in the end, I think, ah, I don't think I can do that. I, I just, I feel like, no, I... If I was going to do that, then I really need to go full on Amish, all right? I need to say, I, I'm doing my very best we're not even hooked up. We don't even take electricity here. We we got our own well water. We're doing our very best to simply be a completely separate society. I'm not doing that. So I feel like I'm being disingenuous to a certain extent. I just want to have a non-participatory role at all in politics, politics even though I'm benefiting yeah. from you know the structures of society. So I want to maybe participate. For a long time, I didn't vote in presidential elections. I would vote in local elections mm -hmm. because I didn't want to see it as, as I was authorizing someone to wage war on my behalf. So I would vote for Bob Dylan or Wendell Berry or somebody like that. I don't mind saying I'm not trying to make this a secret. I voted against Donald Trump. It was my first time in a long time to vote in a presidential election. Why did I do that? Because I just saw it as bad. And 
I told Greg, Greg Boyd and I had this discussion. I said, Greg, I wouldn't ordinarily jump out of a hotel window either, but if the if the hotel was on fire, I might. <laughs> and I just felt like, you know, things were so dire that that I wanted to maybe try to prevent this from happening, although it happened. Hmm. Well, I, you know, you're talking about the Anabaptists, and I think that theology has influenced me a lot. But I think you're right that there's a sense in which... Oh, I'm, I'm very influenced by the Anabaptists. I just can't go f- whole... I can't go completely Anabaptist. Well, there's a biblical tradition. Uh, Daniel is... But I Daniel, admire those... We talk about Daniel, and, yeah. you know, Daniel didn't... He wasn't an Anabaptist. He he accepted the position that God had handed him and the position that he yeah. was in. Yeah. So exactly there's right. a little, there's just like evidences throughout that it's like, well, it doesn't seem like you should be, you know, completely disengaged. I'll I'll share with you kind of where I where I've landed. I mean, clearly I'm a libertarian. I'm running a podcast for the Libertarian Christian Institute. Right. <laughs> but I think part of the reason, the biggest reason is, you know, I was learning a lot of this, like the gospel is more political than I would than I was led to believe about, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And all of a sudden I'm realizing, well, Christians need to promote the common good. And the only people talking about that were what we would now call the progressive left and Christians in that dire- that direction, sojourners, those kinds of articles, book being written. And for some reason, I looked at that and I saw just another flavor of a Christian nation, just different set of issues, different set of things that Christians have to do. And nobody seemed to be being what Walter Brueggemann, and you've kind of picked up on this as well, and we talk about this from time to time, is this whole idea of a prophetic voice against the empire. And it seems to me that both the left and the right, and that's not to say that every libertarian position uh, is correct, but that the left and the right tend to clamor after the power that empire that Caesar gives them, right? even if exactly. all their sort of like benign goals are, you know, Medicare for all, or we just want to make sure that the, that people aren't destitute and dying and going bankrupt and all this other stuff, you know, they, they couch it in terms like common good or national security or, um, you know, family values or whatever. I mean, you know this. So yeah. I have found that the only consistent critique of empire happens from within the libertarian, small L libertarian movement. And that's, I think, why we've, you know, committed as an, my organization has committed to being a prophetic voice because Christians do need to know that the gospel has something to say about how we live our lives with one another. And that includes standing up against tyranny. It includes standing up for the people who are in need, but it doesn't mean that we are first and maybe never line is what is Caesar going to be able to do for us? Yeah. I would be so happy to go back to a largely politically disengaged posture. And I may anyway. I just, I don't know how this part of the podcast will go over. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. But I would just, I've been so alarmed by some of the things that the Trump administration has done, especially with immigrants. Mm that I just felt like I couldn't just stand by passively. You know, in the the family separation policy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I what can I do? Well, I can at least decry the thing and say this is wrong, this is immoral, uh, shame, shame, shame on you. I wish we get, you know, if there was nothing more at stake than how we're going to handle health care or how we're going to, you know, whatever, pay for the infrastructure, then I, I you know, I, I would gladly just sort of take a seat in the corner and say, y'all work this out. But when it's touching on some other issues, I felt like I, I can't just do that. I need to try to say some things. And so I found myself speaking into the political situation more than I'm really comfortable with, more than I like. And I never go into that arena without feeling like I've made a mistake. (laughs) Well, you know, I just, I don't know. And I'm very concerned about how deeply partisan America has become. I, I, I do somewhat worry about it, that Already we are seeing churches and families that are splitting, friendships being lost over just the hard political divide that we have in this country. You know, either you're red or blue, elephant or donkey, you know, Republican, Democrat, Trump or not. And 
Christians have to model something other than that. I think to a certain extent, we've actually been fairly successful at Word of Life, the church I pastor in doing that. Word of Life is by no means a monolith. Everyone in our church, all the church members would know that Brian and Perry are not real keen on Donald Trump. <laughs> they would know that, even though we, I don't talk about it from the pulpit, they would still know that. Mm-hmm. And yet we have plenty of Trump supporters in our church, plenty. And the culture of our church isn't, you have to you know, adhere to this political line. Rather, the culture of our church is one of kindness, that you can hold to a, whatever political position you want within reason, as long as you can hold it in a posture of kindness, and you can't vilify others. So what I'm saying is you can, you can be a Bernie supporter at Word of Life Church, and we have them, and you can be a Trump supporter at Word of Life Church. We have them. What you can't be is mean. What you can't be is just vilifying the other. Uh, that's where the, the rest of the congregation, I think, would say, yeah, that's not how we do it here. We hold on to these things more loosely. So maybe that's the best we can hope for right now in our, in our present climate. But I, but I think word of life in some ways may be more rare than I wish it was. I think churches are either experiencing a lot of fracturing along political lines within them, or the congregation is already a monolith. It's either, you know, they're all right mm-hmm, or they're mm-hmm. all left. So you have some liberal, you know, I don't know, UCC church in San Francisco. They probably don't have political tension in the church because they're all left. <laughs> you know, you have you have some Baptist church in somewhere in Texas, and they don't have political tension in the church because they're all right. Yeah. But, but that isn't how the church should be. So I think Word of Life is successfully modeling something else, but it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. I mean, you have, you're right. It's something that's very polarizing. I think there is a sense in which I see this as a little bit of a silver lining, the Trump phenomenon, and maybe agree or not. But the fact that we have become a little disoriented to how to assess things, yeah, it makes us rethink where we have sort of stood. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, well, George W. Bush, you know, he believes this, 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 and this, and we firmly believe on those things. And yeah, he's a hypocrite because everyone is. And then, you know, you have other people saying the same thing about Barack Obama. You know, he's a good, you know, he's a good family man, blah, 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 blah. And you'd say, oh, he's a good person, but you know, of course he makes mistakes. But now it's like, there's just so much that everyone is just not happy with. And it's just, the, the Trump just kind of upended the whole thing. And now we're, I think the church needs to find where, where it really is. As far as a critique of the religious right, it is uh, an, an eruption of the real, mm. to use that term. That, and here's the critique I'll bring. All of this talk about family values and character counts oh and a return to virtue, that kind of language that was always used that morality matters, all of that. Well, we see that that was always just a ruse, that all that really mattered was power. And that I see as a profound betrayal yeah. of our allegiance to Christ. Would you have imagined in the 90s that the party who I think you were still, at that time, you were still a Republican or kind of more right-leaning, right? Yeah. Would you have imagined that that party would have been okay with the kind of adulterer, philanderer, whatever? No. But but what's even more astounding is let's just take evangelicals. I, I technically I've never in my life described myself as an evangelical. I was I was charismatic, you know, and we didn't describe ourselves as evangelicals. It was the culture wars that drove us all under the same tent. But be that as it may, let's just say uh, there may be people who understand the evangelical world as well as me, but I don't know if there's anybody that understands it any better. I mean, I have been doing life with these people on a vocational level for nearly 40 years. And I am every day of my life now astounded that evangelical Christians have been the most stalwart support base for Donald Trump. Mm. I, I, that, is, that is, truth is stranger than fiction. I could not have predicted that. I would have said at some point, they'll say, no, I just can't get behind this, but it didn't happen. And it's it both surprises, shocks me, but it also deeply saddens me. Mm. And so for anyone that's still maybe in that world that has something of an ear to hear, that's what I wrote Postcards for Babylon from. 
Um, the book isn't written from anger. It's not. It's written dispassionately. I mean, there's an urgency in it. There's an energy in my writing, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not bitter. I'm not angry in that sense. Well, Brian, there was about 16 different points here on my list of things to talk to you about that we didn't get to. So that means you'll be back, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, but what what are you working on next? Is any any new books? Oh, I, I'm just. Well, I'm sitting at my writing desk, and I. I hope to begin a new book. Well, uh, well, let me say a couple of things. First of all, I do have a new book coming out. It's not quite available yet. It'll be available within a few weeks called The Unvarnished Jesus, A Lenten Journey. And it's it takes the reader from Ash Wednesday all the way up to Holy Saturday with about a page or two devotional reading every day. And that'll be out in time for Lent this year. So... Oh, actually, it'll be out this month. But the new project I'm beginning has the working title, What Can We Do When Everything is on Fire? Subtitle, Faith in an Age of Unbelief. And I want to write a book. It'll probably be published by Fortress Press. So we'll see. To help Christians hold on to their faith in the midst of the tsunami of secularism. I've seen so many people lose their faith under the pressures of secularism. or and, and then maybe they have to rethink some of their faith and they go through what they call deconstruction. I don't think that's a helpful term. And I mean, say it, I mean, I haven't written the book yet, but I have an, a fairly clear idea of where I want to go with this book. Mm. And basically the, the purpose of the book is to help Christians hold on to their Christian faith in an increasingly secular age. So that's what I'm going to be writing next. I can't wait to uh, see those come out and undoubtedly I'll invite you back on for us to talk about some of these things and maybe catch up on a, maybe, maybe catch up on some uh, current events that we'll have to talk about in the future. So Brian, thanks for joining us to talk about your book. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.